This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Azure Cheng, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Daniel Simons, Henry Pollock, and Alan Thomas, who all just made one-time contributions to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 419 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing the new horror movie Underwater, directed by William Eubank, and discussing other books and movies in which danger lurks beneath an ocean or a lake. And this will involve spoilers for Underwater, and may also involve spoilers for other books and movies that we discuss, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Grady Hendrix, making his 20th appearance on the show. He's the author of nonfiction books such as Paperbacks from Hell, and novels such as My Best Friend's Exorcism and The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. He also worked as a screenwriter on the recent movies Satanic Panic and Mohawk. So, Grady, welcome to the show. Aloha. Then next up, we've got Paul Tremblay, making his seventh appearance on the show. He's the author of novels such as The Cabin at the End of the World and A Head Full of Ghosts, as well as the upcoming novel Survivor Song. Stephen King calls his recent book, Growing Things and Other Stories, one of the best collections of the 21st century. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, and I'm recording from my half-filled bathtub. (laughs) (laughs) And also joining us today is Molly Tanzer. Her short story collection, A Pretty Mouth, was nominated for the British Fantasy Award, and her weird Western novel, Vermilion, was named an NPR Best Book of 2015. Creatures of Charm and Hunger, the third novel in her Diabolist Library trilogy, is out now from John Joseph Adams Books. So, Molly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, and so I mentioned in the intro there that Molly's new book was published by my former Geek's Guide to the Galaxy co-host, John Joseph Adams. So I was just curious, Molly, do you want to say anything about what it was like working with John? It's been really great working with John. Um, I knew that I could work with him because we had worked together before, back in the day, like a thousand years ago on Lightspeed. Uh, And so I was very eager to work with him, um, and he was on my on my submission list, my like first on my submission list when I first started sending the books out and about. And I think it's been borne out. Working with him has been a, an exceptionally good experience. He's fun to work with. He listens and he also has really good insights into my work. So I felt it's been like a really positive experience. So you were on the staff of Lightspeed? Yeah, I was the managing editor of Lightspeed for like a year or two. And um, I had sort of come over from the fantasy magazine staff when the two magazines merged back in 2010, I think. Mm-hmm. And so then what, uh, tell us a little bit about this trilogy of books. Well, there, whether or not it's a trilogy is sort of up for debate. Uh, people, I guess, have very specific things that they, um, they mean when they say that. And so they are three books that all deal with the idea of diabol- diabolism. Um, so summoning demons in order to uh, work with them and use them, but they're all set in different time periods. Uh, the first one is Victorian London. The second is set during Prohibition on Long Island. And the third is back in England, but in the rural north during the tail end of World War II. And so they're linked with 
little um, like cameos with um, characters here and there, but there are three independent stories. And yeah, they mostly focus on um, two pairs of all three uh, focus on two pairs of women dealing with their lives and also um, the intrusion of the supernatural in the form of diabolism and diablerie. And uh, yeah, I don't know. They all sort of also focus on social justice and after a fashion. And it was, um, it's just been a really fun experience because I'm, I've, I've always been into historical fiction and historical subjects. And so it's been really fun to sort of fuse my love of researching time periods and writing about the supernatural. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's been fun winding down the project this year, even though launching a book during a pandemic and also everything else that's going on has been a very weird experience. So, um, I don't know. I think we're all trying to figure that out at this point, but at the same time, like, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, you understand. How about that? The title, the Diabolist Library. What is? Is there a library, or where does that come from? Well, the uh, well, yeah. So the it, it's funny. Like we had sort of been banging around series titles for a while, and I'm I never know what to call anything. Um, and so we had avoided it until. I guess like the sort of way that book modern book selling wants things to be linked together. Everyone was like, you have to come up with a series title. And at that point, the third book does focus on a library. The, so the first two books have, um, two, the, the, the protagonists sort of start out not, not knowing that, um, demons are real and that diabolism is something that can even be done. And then in the third book, I wanted to mix it up. And so everyone in the book who's a point of view character, they know about demons. They work with them routinely. And the two girls that the book focuses on mainly actually live in the, in a house that sits atop the library that holds um, like every book on um, diabolism that's ever been written. And it's, it's also because there's also a diabolist organization that um, allows people who, who can, who join it and go through the process of joining it to sort of help each other um, with their work. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a reference to the library in which the third book is basically set, but also, um, I guess the trilogy, I sort of imagined that it would be in that library as well. And it is a library of hmm. books about diabolism. So that it came together in that way. That, that idea of a, a library that holds every book about diabolism ever written, that kind of reminds me of Grady's apartment, sort of the same idea. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Um, so yeah, but so the new book, it's called, uh, Creatures of Charm and Hunger. Um, so everyone go check that out. I'm sure that, um, John Joseph Adams would appreciate everyone showing support for one of his authors. Um, all right, but so let's get into our subject, this underwater horror. And part of the reason I wanted to talk about this is just that I've always been really scared of underwater stuff just in general. Um, I can remember when I was a kid, uh, we went on, I went on vacation with my parents and we went snorkeling in some, I, I forget where, some, you know, kind of beach. And, uh, you know, I was reasonably interested, you know, sort of, uh, I had no ob particular objection to the idea. But then as soon as I got in the water, and I kind of put my face down into the water, and I just saw all, all these, like, I don't even know, all this sea life, it just freaked me the hell out. And I just swam straight back to the boat and refused to go back in the water. So that's kind of like <laughs> the story of me with underwater stuff. I have a bunch of other things I could go into, but I was just curious if anyone else Am I alone in this, or does anyone else share my uh, my my fear of uh, underwater stuff? Like, how about Paul? What do you think about that? Uh, oh no, absolutely. Um, I mean, I've I've lived pretty much in and around New England my whole life, so I've always been relatively close to a coast. Um, and I saw Jaws at a relatively young age, so that certainly scarred me. I'm sure we'll talk about Jaws later. So no, I've always the water is where monsters are, <laughs> um, and you know that includes 
you know, ponds and lakes, you know, especially up here in the Northeast, you know, they tend to be pretty dark and murky. Um, and even though I know there's no sharks and ponds and lakes, you know, those, I always get a little bit, you know, unnerved <laughs> when you can't see the bottom of what you're swimming in. Yeah, like I would always, you know, my family, we'd always swim across this lake in Connecticut near where I grew up. And just very often when I was swimming across the lake, I would just like start imagining like, for me, it was always like a skeletal plesiosaurus would be somehow like coming up off the bottom of the lake and coming up toward me. And it was really like hard to <laughs> to get that thought out of my head. Um, and I would just really quickly throw in there leeches too as a kid were <laughs> sort of a big fear of mine. So my younger brother, I remember when he was really little, you know, we went to a really small sort of murky pond. And, you know, it's like a day trip and we came back and he had a, just a leech chomping on his toe, <laughs> you know, the whole ride back, you know, and seeing his shoe taken off and seeing, you know, obviously he was fine, but, you know, when there's a leech there, there's a lot more blood. Um, and I, I'm sure Grady's seen it. Maybe you guys have too, but there was a, a fifties, you know, fifties B horror movie or actually D horror movie called Attack of the Giant Leeches. <laughs> yeah. That, that, you know, freaked me out as a kid when I watched it. So yeah, leeches, man. I thought you were going to talk about Stand By Me. Um, no, no. I mean, yeah. I didn't see that until I was a little bit older. <laughs> Your brother's lucky that leech didn't go up his nose and, like, eat his brain. <laughs> that happens. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> see, Grady, do you have any uh, fear of water? Yeah, I'm terrified of the water. I grew up on the water. Like, we, we had a dock. Like, I grew up sailing and fishing and I scuba dived and stuff and the water is absolutely terrifying. I'll tell you from someone who spends a lot of time in it. Things inside the water are really, really big and they don't want you there. It's a completely hostile environment that hates you actively. Um, drowning is horrifying. Sharks are horrifying. Giant squid are horrifying. Leeches are horrifying. Sea snakes are horrifying. Eels are horrifying. <laughs> Barracuda are horrifying. Water sucks. So wait, why did you spend so much time in the water then? We lived on the like water. Pure, pure, like pure we, pressure? we had a no, like our, our backyard was a harbor. Um, so you didn't have a choice. Hmm. How about Molly? And then, you... like, you know, you do this stuff. I don't know. It seems like a good idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been afraid of, I grew up on the water too. Like my, my whole family, I was, was very aquatic. Like, um, my uncle and my grandfather always were taking me out on the Great South Bay when I was a kid and would come up for the summer to Long Island. And, you know, I lived in, we would always vac vacation at the beach when I was a kid living in Georgia. And then after we moved to Florida, I mean, we were, we were on the coast basically. So I've, I've always been a pretty comfortable swimmer. I've never, I mean, the water is definitely terrifying. And I, I, it's not like I'm ever like trying to plan a vacation to go snorkeling. Like I, I never loved it truly, but I mean, even having, I've been stung on the foot by a, um, stingray i have encountered sharks in the wild i've definitely was had like was rolled up on by a barracuda once and i don't know i just kind of kept getting back in the water um oh yeah i definitely saw like giant jellyfish once and like had an errant tentacle wrap around my leg and had to sort of swim myself one-legged back to safety and stuff and i don't know i guess because i always grew up with it i was like a little chill with it but i don't i'm not like rushing to get back to that lifestyle either so how do you feel about underwater horror? Is this something you're particularly interested in or or not? Yeah, I love it. I mean, you know, I sort of one of my favorite horror and I'm I'm big into Lovecrafty and stuff and his fear of the water is always one of those things that I really I really like because it is terrifying. Um and I I and having spent so much time in the water and on boats and things like that, like I understand the fear that comes from 
those encounters, I don't know, it just never really, it never kept me away. Um, but I do love it because yeah, like there's nothing scarier. I mean, space is one of those things that absolutely terrifies me in space movies. Like if underwater had been set in space, I don't know if I could have made it through it, but for some <laughs> reason under it being underwater, I was like, well, they knew, I don't know. Like it's strange. It's funny if when you mentioned Lovecraft, I, I read a critic one time who said that, you know, Lovecraft's work is scary not because of his monsters, which resemble nothing so much as rotting seafood, but because of the cosmic perspective. But I even think yeah. the rotting seafood stuff is pretty scary. That's my opinion. Well, all of Lovecraft's monsters are seafood, aren't they? <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's one that's not, but... And that's what I'm trying to yeah. think of. Is there one that's not? Yeah, Nyarlathotep isn't, and the Black Goat of the Woods. Oh, right. And the, and the Goat with a Thousand Young or whatever. Yeah, yeah, Shubnagrath. And, yeah. Um, the Color Out of Space isn't, I don't think. That's yeah, true. Yeah, Space. Right. Um, all right, well, so so you mentioned, yeah, this movie Underwater, which is the first uh, first movie I wanted to get to, which is brand new. Um so uh so Paul uh what were kind of your uh expectations going into the movie Underwater? Um I mean fairly low. I mean I'd heard I mean I was just looking for like I would say good dumb fun but that sort of, you know shut your brain off kind of thing. Um and I watched it with my 15-year-old daughter which was fun. You know whenever I can like get her to watch a movie with me it's a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> um so no, I mean obviously Everything that happens in the movie you've seen in either Alien or other or, you know, a whole host of other, um, you know, science fiction and underwater movies, including like, I don't know, I, I guess we're allowed to spoil. But like, since we already mentioned it, like, including the very end, like the giant monster that emerges is a l literal Cthulhu. Um, you know, that sort of riffs on the monster from uh, Cloverfield, right? It's sort of dripping its own <laughs> little humanoid monsters. Um, mm. so, I mean, the plot was what it was, but, you know, I was actually really pleasantly surprised, I thought, by the performances. I mean, I think everyone just sort of committed to it. Like, even, uh, I thought Kristen Stewart was great. I mean, um, I've been a big fan of hers ever since Personal Shopper. Um, I don't know if, if anyone else has seen that movie. It's excellent. That's the name of it, right? Personal Shopper? Yeah, I haven't seen yes. it, but. Um, oh, it's quite good. Um, yeah, so, I mean... What I was looking for, I, I sort of got. I mean, there's the claustrophobia. I, I did think it was, you know, directed pretty well to, to get that feeling of claustrophobia. And I thought the scenes where they're sort of in the dark going across the ocean floor were, you know, were pretty intense, even though, you know, we've experienced movies that were similar to that. I thought that was handled well. Yeah, I had, I also had really low expectations going into this. And I thought it started off very inauspiciously. Uh, it starts off immediately with this disaster with basically zero character development, which made me wonder if it was a dream sequence. Like, I thought it was a dream sequence for like the first minute or two. And then I was like, no, this is going on too long to be a dream sequence. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it had that sort of lack of reality to it. And then the, the black guy died sacrificing himself for the white protagonist. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I was like, oh man, I'm going to hate this movie. But then after that, I thought it got pretty good. I mean, I thought it was, I think you mentioned the direction was pretty good and the visuals and everything. And by the time Cthulhu shows up at the end, I was kind of like, wow, I'm, I'm actually really digging this movie. Um, which, as I said, I, I was not expecting for a movie that was, I think, 48% on Rotten Tomatoes. But, um, uh, Grady, what did you think of Underwater? 
Yeah, my low expectations weren't low enough. Um, I, <laughs> I, I developed, like you guys, a bit of Stockholm Syndrome. But, you know, I didn't know you could make movies like this anymore, where, like, the black dude dies first and all the women wind up in their underwear. Like, it's it was, like, so amazingly cliched. Um, and those are some kind of iPads they have. It's like, you've got a problem. Get the iPad. We can save the world with the iPad. We can do everything with this iPad. I, I don't know. I just... It, it's... It was amazing to me that it managed to rip off beat for beat alien and a lot of aliens and still bored me to death. Um, Kristen Stewart's great. Um, she should get double whatever they paid her. But also, like, I don't think any of those people were actually underwater, were they? Like, that was all just CGI water, right? I, I actually, I don't know anything about how this was made. Um, I can't imagine they would actually find an insurance company that would let them put their actors underwater. Um, and also the presence of TJ Miller. I kept being like, oh my God, it's like a Mucinex commercial, but like the, like the edgy nineties <laughs> new metal Mucinex commercial. It's like, we are the Mucinex monsters. And TJ Miller's like, no man, the Mucinex monsters. Wait, but um, you, and then you didn't, you didn't think it was cool when Cthulhu shut up at the end? Even though I don't think that was actually Cthulhu, I think that was just special. But it didn't do anything. All it did was wave its arms and roar. And it's roaring underwater? Like, what? Huh? <laughs> like, uh, that makes no sense. Uh, Molly, what do you, what do you, what do you think about all this? I, it's strange because I, well, I definitely have been thinking about it a lot. I, I was confused by the movie continuously when I was watching it, and then I haven't been able to stop thinking about it, which you would think would be a good thing. I mean, when media in this crowded environment of news and other media make, makes you think about it, that's something unique. But at the same time, like, I just was surprised by how bold this movie was, where it's like, this movie is about Kristen Stewart in her underwear running around. And I don't mind. I mean, like, I was sort of, I was amazed how committed it was to that aesthetic. But I guess I just, I had heard mixed things. Like, I know everyone had kind of, I, I had known the internet's reaction, but a couple of people that I knew had seen it and they were like, oh, it was actually pretty good. And it was strange. I kind of came down in the middle of it. I, I really liked the beginning of it, I, I was kind of the reverse. I, I really liked the beginning. And then I, I stopped caring the longer it went on. Um, I, I was sort of amazed by her having first thing to um, shut the hatch and kill all those people. I mean, like that is a pretty bold first thing for a protagonist to have to do. It's a bold first choice to make. And then, yeah, they're running around and they're like, Oh, we have to get to the stuff. We've got to get to the other place. That's definitely where we need to go. And then when the black guy died first, I was just like, Really? Not the annoying, funny guy? Because I had my money on him. I thought that guy was definitely going to get iced first thing and was kind of hoping for it as well. Uh, but then, yeah, he just stayed in the movie and I was like, this is a mistake. Because um, mm, I actually yeah. kind of liked her, her, yeah, her, her, that guy that she knew. Um, I mean, I don't know any of their names after watching the whole movie, but yeah, like that guy, <laughs> I thought it was a lot more interesting of a character than like annoying, funny guy. And yeah. And then there was like other man who was the same but like not funny. And, and then, yeah. And I was like, why did both of them live when that guy died? And like, I can't even tell these two actors apart. Are they different? And then, yeah. So it, I think it made some crucial errors, but I kind of, I liked the scene where they had to get through the tight passage with the dead body. Like that was really well done. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I, and that stuck with me in terms of like creating tension and stuff. But then the rest of the movie I felt was just kind of bland. 
maybe. But Molly, you know, I really, I really agree with you. I feel like this entire movie does boil down to like a gif of Kirsten Stewart and her underwear running around because it's mm-hmm. like, and I don't mean it in a salacious way, but she's really like <laughs> an iconic look doing that. And the other actress is in her yeah. underwear almost as much, but she doesn't do it with as much commitment. Like Kristen <laughs> Stewart is like this amazing, iconic image in this movie. It's kind of cool. Well, you, you mentioned, Grady, that you, you didn't know that you could make a movie like this anymore. And I feel like they haven't really made movies like this for a long time. I mean, looking over this list of movies that I watched for this, uh, I, I'll just say I watched 11 movies for this uh, panel. Um, Bragger. And, and uh, it really seemed like, you know, like Jaws is kind of the first thing on this, or well, I guess Creature from the Black Lagoon is, is first on this list. But after that, the first thing on the list is Jaws. And then it seems like that kind of kicked off a whole, uh, you know, wave of of shark movies and underwater movies that kind of uh, peaked in 1989. But then uh, recently, all the, the movies on this list are like Underwater 2020 and The Meg 2018. And before that, you have to go back to The Host 2006. So there was like, yeah, like basically a decade where no underwater horror movies at least uh, were made that showed up on on my list of recommendations here. So, um, so, so, Grady, what do you think about that? Do you think that this is kind of like a, the return of something that hasn't been done in a while, in more than in more ways than just the underwear stuff? Well, I mean, you know, it's expensive, right? Like, as soon as you get on the water, things start costing more money. Um, and I think my guess, because I think, didn't this movie sit on the shelf after they finish it? Because I feel like this movie got finished a few years ago, and because of, like, the T.J. Miller thing and everything, they sat on it for a while. Um, but I feel like this movie exists because they probably figured out a way to digitally do water that was really, really convincing and, you know, put it together like that. Um, and it's clearly designed for an international market. I mean, you've got Vincent Cassell playing, like, you know, C.D. Jacques Cousteau. Um <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I think it's just an expense thing, you know. Um it's expensive. You got to make a monster that looks good. You got to have water. That's a problem. Like, yeah, it's money. But I I mean most of these other movies were made before CGI water or you know, at least good CGI water. So presumably they had they had to figure out some way of making movies involving water. You know, yeah, well I all think their actors. And also, don't forget that there's been a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of direct-to-video and sci-fi water monster movies in the meantime. I mean, that may be the other thing that killed the genre. I mean, there's Raging Sharks, there's Frankenfish, there's um, Blue Demon, there's Shark Attack, there's Shark Week, uh, Zombievers. Like, there's so <laughs> wait, many wait. sci-fi <laughs> channel, DTV. Wait, wait, um, that's, a, that's a real they, thing, Zombievers? Zombievers, yeah. It's, it's actually cute. I mean, you know, there's, there's like a whole shark attack franchise and like Peter Benchley had all those made for TV movies in the nineties and early two thousands, like Beast. And so Peter Benchley's Beast, um, about like a walking octopus that's really angry. So these movie, maybe the reason these movies haven't been made is like they've been, people think they're pretty cheesy. Hmm. See, uh, Paul, what do you think about all the other, what do you think about just the underwater horror genre overall? In terms of of quality. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, that's a good point. There really haven't been like benchmark underwater horror movies for a while. Um, 
you know, even the host, which, you know, I do want to talk about, you know, you're not really getting shots of the monster under the water, right? It's, you know, it goes to the sewer, it goes on to the, you know, the shore of the Han River, et cetera. Um, so I don't know if like underwater horror purists would consider, you know, the host a water movie. Um, but I don't know, like when they're done well, like I said, because it's a primal fear of mine, they scare me. I mean, but like in going through the list, I was trying to think of the ones that were sort of indelible to me. And obviously Jaws, uh, you know, is number one on the list. I think the host is the best one that we've had in the last 20 years. Um, you know, as a kid, I was sort of obsessed for a little bit with Creature of the Black Lagoon. Um, but, you know, I, I haven't dove, pardon the pun, dove as deeply <laughs> into, uh, you know, the movies that, that Grady just sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> just listed off. He didn't say shark to You're not though. missing much. <laughs> well, well, yeah, let me just, that's an interesting point that the host, I don't think you ever see a single shot of the monster underwater that I can think of. But the, the, these underwater horror things basically fall into two categories, right? So you have things where the monster lives in the water, but it comes out of the water to attack. So sure. you got Jaws, the host, Creature from the Black Lagoon, and Lake Placid. And then you have the ones that are actually take place underwater. So you got The Abyss, Deep Blue Sea, Underwater, The Meg, Deep Rising, Leviathan, and Deep Star Six. And the ones that have that take place underwater almost all have the exact same plot and are actually very hard to <laughs> distinguish from each other if you watch a bunch of them all in a row, uh, like <laughs> I did. Um, but let's uh, let's get Molly back in here. So Molly, what did you uh, what do you think? Just overall thoughts on on this this underwater horror genre. I've had a really good time like researching for it because I had actually never seen Jaws all the way through. And, um, like I'd seen clips of it and everything. And I once watched a good part of it floating on an inner tube in a pool in college where they were screening (laughs) it on the side of the building, but it was just like too cold. And then I also suspected, which did happen that someone was going to get in the water and start pulling on people's feet. So I never finished it, but it was so incredible. And it actually got, it really, really got me at one point. I definitely said like, ah, out loud at one point when they're like leaning over the back of the boat and then like he come like jaws is there as well and um so that was really good but yeah i don't know it's the it's strange because i think that there's been like a couple of other as i was watching lake placid actually um i was thinking about a couple of films that didn't make the list um that you know and one of them was this sort of obscure sci-fi movie from about a 10 years ago called outlander um, that has an aquatic monster, but it sort of fuses both aquatic and outer space because Outlander, the plot of Outlander is, um, Beowulf, but it's, um, but oh. basically like a guy from outer space, like a spaceman crashes and there's like a monster on his ship and it gets into the lake and then he has to go and like learn the ways of primitive man, uh, and like fight it with them. And it's, so that's, that was like another one that, um, I was thinking about in terms of that. And so there's the in, in and out of the water monster movie as well as the underwater, like, I don't know. I guess I didn't know what our terms were because like there's underwater horror, like creature from the black lagoon where you get a lot of shots of people swimming. And then there's like that sort of more like placid style where it's like something's in the water and it's going to get you, but maybe it comes out of the water or maybe you go into it sometimes. Um, and the other one I wanted to shout out to is Shape of Water, which I guess, but I mean, that came out, um, more recently. And I guess that would technically maybe be like underwater horror, although most of the horror is on land and most of the underwater is pretty peaceful or raunchy, depending on the moment of the film. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, I don't know. I loved Outlander. And I was thinking as I was sitting there watching Lake Placid, I wished that I was rewatching Outlander just because like, yeah, I genuinely did enjoy it for it being what it was. Um, and it still had the same kind of vibe of like, oh, no, it's in the lake. Shit, it's going to come out of it and come get us. Um, yeah, we should have had that have on the list. Though. I could have had I could have watched 12. Yeah, I, I totally forgot about it. It's funny, though. I actually had never seen Jaws from beginning to end either. Um, so, uh, who are you people? (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, actually, because I had a, um, a high school, I was like, I haven't watched a lot of old horror movies because I was just too scared to watch them as a kid. So I've had to, Mm. if I've seen any old horror movies, it's because I had to go back and watch them later. But I mean, I had a, um, English teacher when I was in high school who said that Jaws scared him so much that for like months he was afraid to even take a shower and he would like, you know, like he refused to take a shower unless like kind of the door was cracked and his mom could like yell at him and you know confirm that there were no sharks coming or something. So um oh, so yeah, God. I never saw it for that reason. Like Paul, you said it really scared you or Oh yeah. Um hell yeah. Uh, before I forget though, it does remind me I think one of the first movies I ever saw, I mean it sort of fits in what we're talking about is you know the original Godzilla. Um you know, as a creature from the sea, mm. obviously most yeah. of his mm. most of his you know destructions on land. But, um, you know, even the scenes like how they kill Godzilla in 1954, is, you know, with this weird weapon that basically, you know, disintegrates all life in the water. And that's sort of like an image as a kid that I, you know, have vividly have of him dropping this into the, you know, dropping that weapon into like a fish tank just to demonstrate, you know, um, demonstrate, you know, how the mm-hmm. weapon works. You know, when Godzilla killed, I was really sad as a kid. Um, and actually, I think it's a very, it is a sad uh, moment in the movie. But anyway, Jaws, yeah, I saw it. When I was 10, my father, it was being screened at our high school for some reason. Um, and my dad totally underplayed the movie for me. He said, ah, oh, there's a great scene in this movie that, that captures the feeling of, of fishing like no other. <laughs> that was how he told me what the movie was. I mean, he's nice. sort of right, I suppose, in the scene where, where Quint first hooks Jaws, like with a, with a rod and reel, like just starts, you know, ticking a little bit. Yeah. That's a great fishing <laughs> scene. But, uh, no, I had, I'm not exaggerating. I think I had eight years of shark nightmares after that movie. Like most of my dreams, I would end up in the water somewhere. I actually thought my favorite scene in Jaws was actually the scene where Quint describes how he was on the um, the Navy ship that was sunk. Oh, absolutely. And then, you know, the sharks. Yeah. Were, it was like a feeding frenzy for a week or something before they were rescued. Just like that scene of him just sitting there talking was actually the highlight of the movie for me. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the U.S. Indianapolis scene, um, you know, for me, it's like... I don't know. I think people could argue that's one of the, <laughs> it's just a perfect moment of film, that, that speech and, uh, sort of apocryph- apocryphally, it's, you know, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but, you know, people claim that, that Robert Shaw sort of, uh, came up with that soliloquy on his own or, or took what was loosely in the screenplay. Maybe Grady knows more than I do about that. Um, and sort of just, you know, went off on it and they just had the cameras rolling. Um, yeah. I, period- I periodically go through, years where I'm just totally obsessed or get re-obsessed with Jaws. Um, and there was a point a few years ago where, you know, I just dug into Robert Shaw a little bit more. Like, he was a playwright. Um, <laughs> and I managed to track down on eBay a copy of a play he, he wrote called The Man in the Glass Booth, and it's about Nazi war c- crime trials, and it's actually, it's a really interesting play. It's like, oh, who knew that Quint <laughs> was, uh, you know, such a talented guy? Um, and doesn't he play the bad guy in The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3? I don't know. I haven't seen that movie. Um, 
Yeah, but no, they, he, the, the, that speech was actually written by John Milius, you know, who directed Conan the Barbarian hmm. and Red Dawn and stuff. Um, but, and wrote Apocalypse Now. But yeah, Shaw did a lot of riffing on it. Apparently the first day on set when he did that speech, he was so drunk building up to it that like he just couldn't do it. And then he was, and they had to rap for the day. And then he came in the next day and nailed it. Wow. Wow. Um, do you know anything else, Grady, about Jaws as a hardcore horror expert that we should, uh, we should mention here? No, I mean, you know, the thing with Jaws is just like, I'm always amazed when I watch that movie that Roy Scheider didn't die of skin cancer. Like, you know, he just died of something else. I'm like, he's so frickin' tan in that movie. I keep wanting to, like, you need to be indoors and wearing long sleeves. <laughs> um, no, it's a good, Jaws is a great movie. And I think that's the problem with the underwater horror genre is it's underwater. So, you know, limited scenarios occur to people. And either there's a monster after you or you're looking for something or you're in, something you're inside is collapsing. And then it's like, Spielberg did it best. Like, you know, no one's been able to build on what he did. Um, and I don't know if it's just because mm, the other people trying aren't that good. I mean, I don't know. You look at James Cameron uh, with The Abyss. Uh, uh, Grady, you say that no one built on what he did, but I just want to point out that Deep Blue Sea had super smart sharks. That's and true. The Meg had a giant prehistoric shark. A giant shark. No, you're right. And mm. I retract those comments because also, I mean, <laughs> Um, Hammerhead Shark Frenzy, um, has a half person, half shark, and Blue <laughs> Demon has, uh, military sharks. Uh, so yeah, people have built on what he's done. Um, you're right. I just feel like maybe they're not quite as talented. Um, which is too bad. Also, James Cameron, I mean, The Abyss, like, what's that? I love that movie until I realize what it's about and where it's going, and then I lose interest. Yeah, well, let me say, I mean, I only watched, the, you know, I did, there's a whole, like, genre of shark attack movies that I didn't have time to watch any of them, like The Shallows, and it's like 47 mm. feet under or something like that. Oh, um, I've seen them. But, but <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. But so, 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 Molly, like, have you watched any other uh, shark attack movies? No, I, you know, it's funny, like, I, when I watch Heart, I'm... I am similar in that I was too scared to watch horror movies as a kid. I was, I was traumatized at about eight years old by, uh, Poltergeist 2 when it was on television and, uh, had only been, t I, and yeah, I was just like, wow, horror movies are too scary for me. And so it was in my twenties that I started doing a lot of work in terms of educating myself in the genre. But the, my, my least favorite horror genre is, this animal that's just trying to get by is attacking us. And now we're all super like exercised about it. Um, and Jaws, I was, that's why I was amazed that I like Jaws so much. Cause usually I'm just like, go animal. And in this case, I'm like, get that Jaws. <laughs> like, Oh my God, get him out of here. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I've, I've often steered clear of animal attack horror. I would much rather watch something about like human, human infamy or like the supernatural. Um, because I had, as a kid, I was always very empathetic to animals and as an adult too, but I had read something as a, as a small child that like people became a lot more afraid of sharks after Jaws and were more willing to kill them and hunt them. And I was like, oh, this movie is irresponsible. And so like just never got around to watching it, but now I am glad that I did. What did you think, Molly, of Creature from the Black Lagoon? Cause it is basically a like monster attacks movie, but it's sort of weirdly sympathetic to the monster although not not it really is, even overtly so but it's like definitely there i really i really liked it i thought 
I, I was so pleasantly surprised by it. You know, it's funny because a couple of months ago I watched, um, what is the pod people movie invasion of the body snatchers. And I had never seen that all the way through either. And like both of these films, I was just like, wow, I really expected them to be boring, but neither of them were, I can now see the, the reason for their cultural significance. Um, but yeah, I really liked it. I liked the empathy for the monster and it definitely contextualized the shape of water for me, which like, I mean, I knew, which I knew, um, academically, but I had not sort of experienced the wonder of Creature from the Black Lagoon. So I I really thoroughly enjoyed it. It was probably that and Jaws were tied for my favorites that I watched for this. So see Paul, did you say that you had some um the creature from the Black Lagoon made a big impact on you or Well again, I mean because I started at a really young age, I mean my sort of entrance into monsters just in general were like I loved dinosaurs as a kid, sort of stereotypical kid, I guess. Um so, you know, the first, you know, so I'm talking like 70 years old. So the first things that I would dare watch would be, you know, Godzilla or, or kaiju movies, because to me, they were just big dinosaurs. So I think Creature from the Black Lagoon was <laughs> sort of a, a step into, I guess, more, you know, horrific treatment for those, you know, kind of monsters. Because, you know, what really drew me as a kid was, you know, the design of the creature. I mean, he looked like, a you know, sort of a human, you know, dinosaur to me, especially like his hands and his fins and Obviously, you know, the shots underwater, you know, the, um, mm. recently there was a book written by Mallory O'Meara, about, uh, called, oh shoot, I'm going to forget the title, but Lady it's about from how, the Black Lagoon. yes, thank you, Lady from the Black Lagoon. Millicent Patrick was sort of the, was the person who ultimately designed the creature, but got no credit for it because of sexist Hollywood. Um, it's really a fascinating biography. I would highly recommend, you know, obviously for fans of Creature from the Black Lagoon, but just for, you know, a general read. It's, it's really well done. Do you know, do you know, Paul, how they shot the underwater scenes in Creature from the Black Lagoon? I assume they were in some sort of big pool or something, or I, I was just one, the whole time I was watching it, I was just wondering, like, yeah, I don't in, know. In 1954, don't know. how did they, how did they make this? I think it was just a studio tank. Uh-huh. Hmm. Um, is there anything else, Grady, that we should know about Creature from the Black Lagoon? No, except the creature's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, see, I, I don't know anything about the background of the movie, but I, I strongly got the sense watching it that they were just churning out these kind of monster movies one after another, and they probably expected this one to be nothing special, and it just, like, ended up being really good. And, like, you know, I, I think that was the sense I got, that probably they were surprised at how good it turned out to be, but... Yeah, I found it riveting. Yeah, I don't know, Paul. Do you remember much from Lady? Um, oh, well, I mean, really focused on the, the original movie. I know there were two sequels after that, which are, yeah. you know, pretty, pretty forgettable. And actually, I think the third one is pretty uh, sadistic and cruel. Um, for, you know, I, I don't remember specific instances, but it's pretty much becomes almost like a, you know, a slasher on land because they've removed all the, the creature's gills. So, I mean, it's cruel, you know, to the creature. It's cruel to, you know, what happens, you know, to the people uh, on land as well. So, I mean, both movies to me, you know, I have no, almost zero memory of compared to the first. Um, and Mallor Mallory's book really focuses on Millicent's sort of how she got into Hollywood, you know, how she got onto the, you know, to the movie set, and then basically how she was basically, you know, erased from the history of that movie. Well, I mean, Grady, earlier you were saying that it's kind of expensive to shoot underwater and everything and i really felt that so many of these movies i mentioned so many of them have the exact same plot they're as people said rip-offs of alien or aliens or whatever 
And I just wonder if, um, you know, the, the practical difficulties of shooting in water and underwater make it so you can't take any risks and you, you have to do the, the safest, most predictable kind of movie if you're, if it involves water. I mean, I don't know. It, it, I feel like, I just feel like there's just people go in with a limited idea of what you can do, right? Like, um, you know, I, I don't know. It's weird. It's, it's just, they're all so much the same. I mean, it's, they're all alien or aliens. Um, although it is weird to watch Piranha 2, which is <laughs> James Cameron's first movie he directed. Um, and that's the one where the piranhas grow wings and can fly. And you actually see him doing stuff in Piranha 2 that he's going to redo in Aliens. So there's like a whole chase through some ducks and a ship that like is, is you see shots from it in Aliens and the chase through the duct at the end. And there's a Burke, a Paul Reiser character who's like, a note perfect version of like Paul Reiser's character for aliens. Uh, and there's like all this talk of the company, um, which is kind of cool, but yeah, I mean, often they just wind up being the same thing or it, like in the mag, they're just the same thing, but with a bigger shark or in the abyss where they're kind of almost the same thing, but really cool. And then glowing aliens appear. You can tell me if this, I think this is right, right. That James Cameron got to start working for Roger Corman doing. Yeah. He was a, stuff. Yeah, he was a special effects director and a art department guy for um, New World Pictures, I think, Roger Corman's company at the time. Yeah, and and what was? Is, do you know anything about how he came to make Piranha Two? Because I I just sort of imagine like they, I don't know, they needed someone to do it, and it's not like it was a passion project for him or something. But uh... no, but he really wanted to direct, and I think he made a deal. I can't remember what it was, but I think the deal was that he would do an effects job for Corman that he really didn't want to do um, if he got to direct something. And so they gave him Piranha 2, like, be careful what you wish for. But I got to say, to to his credit, like, he got fired off the project by the producer who was, uh, who was Ital- I think it was an Italian co-production or something, or they were editing it in, in Italy, maybe? And so he was breaking into the uh, post-production offices every night after they closed and, like, re-editing the movie back to the way he wanted it to be. Um, wow. And no one noticed. Um, well, let's talk about The Abyss, uh, which is, I don't know if you, I would really call it a horror movie, but it has some horrific scenes in it. But, um, uh, see, Molly, did you, uh, have, did you watch The Abyss? No, that was not one of the ones that I got to. Okay. Paul, did you watch The Abyss? Um, a long, long time ago. Um, and to me, the most horrific part of it was, um, the dude from The Terminators. He was, he was the villain and he had a mustache. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Michael Bean. That actually, Bean, that's, that yeah. sequence is actually really, really bad in in the abyss where he goes crazy and like tries to nuke mm. the aliens. I'm um, not sure he's going crazy, or if Michael Bean was just on a lot of cocaine at the time because that's exactly <laughs> how he's acting. Um, but I, I guess yeah, if if Paul and Molly didn't watch this, uh, I won't spend too much time in the abyss. But the the part that really I think. Well, one thing is that, like, even now, this movie's from 1989, and even now the special effects look really good, and it looks like oh, a they're lot amazing. of it was, yeah. actually, was actually shot underwater. Um, yeah. But the um, there's a scene, to me, the most memorable scene is um, uh, the, the two main characters, who are husband and wife, are in a, a, a mini submarine, and it's rapidly filling with water, 
and uh, and the husband says to his wife, who's a, who's an engineer or something, he says, you know, you're smart. You figure out how to get out, how we how we're going to get out of this, and and you know, and, and this is like the water is literally rising moment by moment as she's trying to figure out this problem, and she says, well, you could you can swim back and get and, and they only have one suit is the issue. And she's like, well, you can swim back to base and get me another suit. But she's like, no, that'll take too long. I'll be dead. And she's like, okay, here it is. Uh, you let me drown and this water is really cold and you pull my dead body back to base and then resuscitate me. And, uh, and I'm like, holy shit, that's a, that's a real, and then, you know, and she's, and then like, so they've come up with this plan, this desperate plan. And then the water starts, you know, drowning her and she's like, no, no, I'm scared. I'm scared. And then, you know, kind of goes under. And that whole thing is just so intense. And that really is sort of the, I mean, most of the movie, as I said, I wouldn't say it's a horror movie, but that was a horror, a horror scene to me. Um, Well, it's also, you know, it's um, also, I spent a lot of time worrying about that guy's pet rat, you know, (laughs) so many bad things (laughs) happen to that rat. Um, But it's also such a blue collar movie. And that's one of the things I think a lot of these underwater movies get wrong. Like everyone looks like they went to college in a lot of them. And like, the people who work on oil rigs and, and do underwater work and construction and stuff, these are like construction jockeys and, and wildcatters and stuff. There was just a great, great article, uh, in the New Yorker, cause I'm such a precious nerd. I read the New Yorker. Um, but it was about a, a rich dude who's like, he wanted to go to the five deepest parts of the ocean. And so he put together a crew and they did it. And these people are lunatics. I mean, they just are insane. They're working on the boat and like they're doing it in New Orleans and throwing a feeding pizza to the alligators after they knock off work. And um, they're just a bunch of misfits and, and creeps and there's there's men and there's women and there's, there's just like this really, and they're from all these different countries. And it's something that you just don't see. It's like, Richard Dreyfus and Roy Scheider and Robert Shaw would fit in perfectly with the crew in the abyss. They wouldn't even be noticed. Um, but I feel like so many movies don't like, I didn't believe that a single person, except for maybe Vincent Cassell in underwater had ever used a wrench. Mm. <laughs> well, let me say about the abyss. One thing I read is that um, James Cameron, apparently he had the idea when he was 12 or something and yeah. he kind of returned to it periodically, but it was, a, it was about scientists. Yeah. And then he got to the point where he was, you know, well-known enough that he could actually make it happen. And he's like, what was I thinking making it scientists? Like, Americans don't care about scientists. I got to make it, you know, working class characters. And that's that's much more commercial, you know. So, uh, yeah, that was definitely intense. Well, it was interesting reading this article because these guys were making these dives in these enormous high pressure, like literal high pressure environments. And they'd be down 35,000 feet summer day. And like, you know, just suddenly there'd be a fire in the tiny little mini sub they're in. And they're like, oh, yeah. and they were just very calm and very practical. But, you know, they must be shitting bricks because they are about to die. Um, and it's just you see them deal with these life or death situations one after the other in this very like you were just saying about the scene with Ed Harris. And I think it's Mary Stewart Mastriano, like in just very practical, rational, matter of fact ways. It's I always find that really interesting in movies. To Grady's point about, you know, the blue collar workers, there's an amazing documentary that came out, I think, a year ago. And it's called Last Breath. Um, you know, so obviously it's not a horror movie, but like as intense a movie as I've ever seen, because they've got the video footage, you know, and all the interviews with the people on this rig. But uh they were doing like a routine, some routine check where they have a bunch of divers that are on the, the bottom of the North Sea. Um, and it was one of those things where everything that could go wrong went wrong. And there was a diver stranded on the bottom with only like five minutes of oxygen left. 
Um, and the rescue, you know, takes about 30 minutes. Uh, so I, I wouldn't say too much more, but it is, I mean, it is one of the, you know, for a documentary, it's one of the most intense movie experiences that I've, I've had recently. I'm glad I just remembered that movie. Well, and that brings up a really good point because one of the reasons these movies may not be very good or seem to be retreading the same ground is it's a totally new, different environment that like is really alien to all of us, certainly is to me. And it requires a lot of research and a lot of work if you're going to understand it and, and do things that are interesting and surprising with it. Like you're just saying, Paul, like someone's underwater, everyone on that bridge of that ship knows three, four, five, six different options for rescuing that guy, each one progressively riskier and more dangerous. Uh, and they, and like you were just saying, you know, Dave, like, you know, her, she came up with an engineering solution. And I feel like that kind of thinking about, you know, in a new environment, that kind of research that would be required, that kind of interviewing people, you know, screenwriters are just lazy. They don't want to do that. <laughs> I want to get Molly back in here. Molly, are there any other movies the, that you watch for this that you wanted to talk about? Well, I definitely, after suggesting Lake Placid, subjected myself <laughs> to it. Um, and uh, I don't know why. I, I, I'm pretty sure I never saw it all the way through. I'm pretty sure I saw the clips of Betty White and some of the clips of Oliver Platt, but I'm not sure I ever watched it. And if I did, then I'm sorry for everyone I recommended it to just because, wow, it did not age well. Um but I would, I'm kind of interested of maybe watching The Abyss now just because I have the sort of, I just noticed so much often in 90s movies, um, the representation of women, especially professional women, is so much worse than it was in the 80s. And Lake Placid is such a classic example of that just because the lady scientist is like 90s shrill. Um, and I kind of want to see The Abyss now as like a counterpoint just because I think that's from the 80s, right? And then 96, and I think. apparently it has like a major. No, The Abyss is 89. 89? Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was that early. Um, and actually, uh, James Cameron said he based the, that the character, the, the female engineer, on um, Gail Ann Hurd, who was like his producing partner at the time, and, and they got married and I think divorced oh, wow. in the course of making the movie. Um, but, but she's obviously, I mean, <laughs> just being a producer, obviously, is a very sort of capable um, person. Hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to go, to go and watch it now just, just for that reason alone. But yeah, I definitely, um, I've rarely seen a movie that could, I could so obviously place in 1999 as Lake Placid. So, um, but yeah, I did get to hang out with Betty White again, which was nice. Yeah. And you watched it too, right? I, I watched Lake Placid. Yeah. Uh, on your, on your recommendation. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, yeah, the, the characterization is really, uh, painful in the movie. I mean, a lot of these movies, and it's more like a, more of a comedy to me than a, a horror movie, really. Yeah, it's campy. Um, the, actually, the, the one part that really made me laugh is, uh, the, um, there's this eccentric, uh, alligator hunter guy, you know, like wealthy alligator hunter guy. And, um, <laughs> and he's, he's getting into an argument with, uh, the, the sheriff. And, uh, and the sheriff's like, I'm going to punch you. And the guy's like, yeah, well, I have a brown belt in karate. So like, you just try it. And the guy just punches him and knocks him over. And he's like, wait, he didn't say go. You're supposed to say go. That's how he's in, he's in karate. Yeah. 
Oliver Platt's always such a professional. I laughed at that too. I just, I have such affection for Oliver Platt in general that like he got, but I was like, I forgot that he was such a weird grotesque. The the moment that got me like to genuinely guffaw out loud was when the shrill scientist lady um, gets hit with like yet another prop head. And she's like, why do I keep getting hit with heads? And I was like, that is a very 90s horror comedy line and laughed very hard at it. But otherwise I was, <sighs> I had regrets. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Gray, did you ever see Lake Placid? I did. You know, I think I saw it in theaters when it came out, um, and I don't remember it very well. But I, I feel like, wasn't that right around the same time as Anaconda? Well, Lake Placid mm. was 99. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know off the top of my head when Anaconda was. Yeah, I feel like there was like, you know, this this series of like movies about semi-aquatic creatures attacking people on a boat. Um, yeah. Are there good, great? Are there good lake monster movies? Because you would think that a, making a lake monster movie doesn't have the same um, practical constraints as making, you know, a deep yeah. sea kind of movie. Well, I mean, there's um, there's an Australian movie called Blackwater about people who go on a boat safari and get attacked by an immense alligator. I don't love it as much as other people do, but people really do like it a lot. Um, oh, there's another Australian alligator attack movie. I can't it's remember the Rogue. name of. Rogue. Rogue, yeah. How is that? Yes, that is actually quite. It's it's you know for what it is, it's good. And I think, you know, one of the things is they smartly sort of like Jaws does, um, you know, save, you know, their budget for like a few scenes. Like you don't see the crocodile in every scene, um, because especially now, like if you see it, it's like CGI. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I thought it was a pretty effective movie. You know, smart in the in the conceit that it had as to why these people were sort of trapped on this riverbank. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's worth a watch. It's funny. Like, I, I haven't. I was sitting here thinking I haven't seen um, Lake Placid. I, I guess I'm just sort of outing myself as just someone who's terrified by <laughs> anything closely related to Jaws. Because of Jaws, I've seen like no other shark movies besides The Shallows. Um, in uh, John Sales's screenplay for what was it Alligator? Oh yeah, Alligator's great. Um, yeah, I mean, so that, I saw that as a kid, that scared me. I, I probably should rewatch that as an adult because, you know, I do hear about his screenplay and his quirky characters. Um, so yeah, I guess I've been starting to ease my way back. Like I actually did watch Rogue. <laughs> and as I mentioned, I watched The Shallows, but, um, I is mean, I, I wish I could. Is The Shallows good? No. Again, no, it's not. <laughs> the problem no. with the shallows is it's all CGI water, so it starts to feel right. like you're trapped in a screensaver at a certain point. <laughs> um, like it's it, like, did you find that, Paul? Like these weird moments where you're like, are we underwater? Which way's up? Which is down? I don't know what's happening here. Um, you know, I didn't notice the CGI water. Maybe it's us because watching it on a smaller screen at home as opposed to, I don't know if you saw it on the big screen. Yeah, well, I maybe, maybe you don't want to admit you paid and start on the big screen, but, uh, <laughs> leave me alone. No, I mean, that's how sort of dumb I am. Like I didn't even realize they were using CGI water. I mean, I figured it was just, you know, the, the shark obviously was CGI. Yeah. Well, you know, in terms like Brady of- takes his water very serious, his water. I guess so. Convincing this very <laughs> yeah. seriously. Well, and just in terms of lake monsters, um, I'd just like to say a little word for Frankenfish, which I think is a <laughs> sci-fi movie from the early 2000s, which is not good. But it's actually looking at the, the giant bottomless trench of crap sci-fi movies have descended to recently. It actually is quite surprisingly well done. And it's made pretty well. There's actually some sequences in it that are 
good and china chow's in it like and she's not bad like it's like it's it's i I will say it's not a bad late monster movie and julia katz and paul katz her husband but i think she took her name off the book because maybe she wrote it herself and just but anyway there's a book called alligator which is from the 70s early 80s um david foster wallace has always said it's one of his 10 favorite novels of all time it's a Hmm. it is the book that people think peter benchley's jaws is but jaws is actually a terrible book this is actually jaws done better in the florida Hmm. everglades with like white trash rednecks instead of like you know stuffy new england like yankees uh it's phenomenal it's a terrific Hmm. book it sounds like a great read. And I mean, like I, my, I grew up, I had, I lived for 10 years in in Florida and spent a lot of time in central Florida. So I'm highly intrigued by this now. Oh yeah. It's, it's oozing central Florida. Oh, I'll have to, if I ever feel like going back there, I'll have to check it out. <laughs> Emotionally, <laughs> I mean. So, so yeah, like I said, a lot of these movies, I, I wouldn't recommend them, you know, most of them, but I'll, I'll just highlight some of the good things. Um, since I, I watch them, so you don't have to. But uh, in Deep Blue Sea, there is a shocking, a, a, de- a shocking death that I actually thought was great. But the, um, you know, by far the most recognizable member of the cast is Samuel L. Jackson, who's this um, guy who once uh, survived a um, an avalanche, and uh, and it comes out. You know, once the first couple people uh, die, uh, he talks about what you have to do to survive, and you know how he. Uh, you had engaged in cannibalism to, to survive this avalanche and how they have to have the right attitude and how they're all going to make it out of this. And, um, and just as everyone's starting to, um, get, uh, you know, get their morale up, a shark just comes out of nowhere and kills him. And I was, I was genuinely flabbergasted when that happened. (laughs) So, so that was, that was a good scene. And then actually, so, so the premise of the movie is that they're in this, um, this shark research facility that's mostly underwater. It's like three floors underwater and um and the sharks are genetically engineered to be hyper intelligent and so they keep um moving moving from um section to section and and each section gets flooded as they move into it because they have to open the doors and let all the water in and then it turns out at the end that the sharks have been intentionally hurting them where they wanted them to go so that they would fill up the different sections so that the sharks could swim out of the facility and i actually thought that was brilliant and unfortunately the movie doesn't really do anything with it but i totally thought the ending of the movie should have just been they realize that and the sharks swim away and it's just sort of like a creepy um you know sinister kind Mm. of ending i thought that actually would have been great leading to the sequel deeper blue sea (laughs) the sort of the ex machina of a underwater horror movie yeah 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 no that's exactly the tone it should have had yeah um See, Molly, were there any um, books or anything that you wanted to mention? Um, Yeah. Actually, I'll just read the list that people, this is what our listeners recommended for this topic, that in terms of books, we got Starfish by Peter Watts, Sphere by Michael Crichton, Deep Storm and Riptide by Lincoln Child, The Kraken Wakes by John Wyndham, Beast by Peter Benchley, Into the Drowning Deep by Seanan McGuire, The Scar and Sacken by China Mieville, uh, the Shadow Over Innsmouth, The Temple, and Dagon by H.P. Lovecraft, and there's an anthology called The Devil in the Deep, edited by Ellen Datlow. Um, but yeah, so so Molly, go ahead. What would you want to say? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I love the I, I I love all of the Lovecraft stuff, and but I know that you've been talking a lot about that on the show recently. But I I definitely got um, my 
Denver Public Library hold on Shauna McGuire's Today. So I was not able to read it, um, sadly, but I'm excited to now read it after the show has gone over, but uh, it did not come through in time. But yeah, I really, I, I think it's so interesting the way that Lovecraft uses water. And if we want to talk about that, we can. But if other people have done more of the assigned reading, then I don't want to take up the time for that. No, no, go ahead. I think that's interesting because, yeah, I don't think in our previous Lovecraft panel, we really talked about underwater stuff really at all. Yeah, I just think that he, with his fear of it, really does capture sort of the horror of water. I mean, like, it's interesting because I, I loved, I, I guess I was really, the thing I really appreciated about Lake Placid, the only thing I really appreciated about Lake Placid is that the, they really did capture sort of the murkiness of lake, of lake swimming and things like that. And a couple of years ago when I was training for a triathlon, I had to do a bunch of open water swimming to practice and I realized that I have, I'm totally comfortable swimming in the ocean as I've done it all my life, but lake swimming is a lot different. Like you can't see anything and it's full of gross pond weed and scum and algae and things that really inhibit your ability to know how deep you are and have any concept of what is beneath you. And I definitely had to check my fear level swimming out into several different open water bodies to practice um, just because, yeah, like, I think that that's, it's funny because like when like Jaws and a couple of the other ocean movies, like ocean water really is often so clear that the, you know, you really see what's coming for you, but in a murky environment, you can't. And, um, you know, relating that back to Lovecraft a little bit, I think that he, he gets that horror of the yawning deep beneath where you don't know how, you don't know what's below you and you get the sense that it's not good. And I really like that in the temple. And I think he also captures it um, pretty interestingly in Dagon a few times too. Yeah, well, I think that's one thing that's really striking about the water is that, you know, on land, if there is something that's a mile tall or something coming towards you, you know it. Whereas there's yeah. almost no limit to how large something could be approaching you from underwater and you would you know, not know it until it's right upon you. So, yeah. And the other thing I was thinking about is just sort of environmental differential where like anything that is in the water has the entire use of the water to access to get to you. But we being earthbound creatures only have like the surface of the water. Like we're almost we're more at their mercy than they are at ours because they can go deep. But that kills us. And we drown, either like pressure or, you know, asphyxiation. And then, but there's not, it's not like we can fly away. We're not birds. And so, you know, we're trapped on the surface, but they almost have sort of that infinite space beneath to utilize. And I think that comes, that's a really interesting part of the pressure is sort of the constrainedness of like a boat on a surface. And even if you have like a shark cage or a, a scuba suit, you're, you're less adapted to the water than they are. And I think that that is often very usefully utilized with, with underwater stuff, just because, yeah, there's, we're always at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. See, Paul, were there any uh, books that you, uh, that you wanted to mention? Uh, yeah, one not on the list. Although, um, I mean, I read China Meville's The Scar a long time ago, so I, <laughs> I'm a terrible like plot memorizer. Like I'm always, um, impressed by, you know, people like Molly and Grady, how they can remember details from things that they've read from so long ago. But anyway, um, and I believe the other China Meville novel on that list is Kraken, not, Oh, um, no, the, no, the, apparently this is a short story called Sat. Oh, right? a short story. Okay, my fault. Um, Although no, he does actually book, have a book called Kraken, too. So. Right, which doesn't have a lot to do with the water. <laughs> I thought it was that. Um, now, there's one book I would mention because it was made into a film, and I haven't been able to bring myself to watch it. Um, the, the book is really good. It's called Cold Skin by a Spanish author, um, Albert Sanchez Pinol. Um, and I'll pitch it to you this way. It's sort of, if you've seen... 
The Lighthouse, the recent movie, The Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. Think of that mixed with Shape of Water. Um, huh. but like way more icky. And as a, me- and it's really sort of a purposely uncomfortable metaphor for colonialism. Um, I'll, I'll tell you the opening of the book. Um, there's this younger man who's going to replace, or supposed to be replacing someone at this, you know, southern tip of Chile, I believe. Um, you know, outposts, not even like a lighthouse, but just an outpost for some reason. And it's not made clear why, you know, they want someone manning this area. Um, they get there, they can't find the person, they basically can't find the person who is supposed to still be there. So they're kind of like, all right, well, we're going to just leave you here then. Um, and that first night, all these sea creatures come and attack, attack the house. Um, and it goes from there. I mean, it is sort of like a, it goes into some surprising areas. So as wow, um, maybe off the beaten path book. Yeah, no, and it actually did pretty well internationally like in terms of like you know languages that it was uh, translated into and copy sold and it was made into a movie that i have not watched yet but again so it's called cold skin that's that actually sounds really cool yeah i mean um just as you're talking it's making me think of you know i read a, a lot of um brian lumley books and he uses a lot of you know lovecraftian monsters like the deep ones um except his stories you know he's from uh, the uk and so the stories are mostly set in the uk and so, you know, you, you get this idea that the, the deep ones aren't just off the coast of Massachusetts. You know, they're also off the coast of, uh, you know, the UK and, and stuff like that. And I guess like different authors from around, you know, internationally have, you know, put these Lovecraftian monsters, you know, in their own, um, you know, particular geographic regions. But I always, I always kind of like that idea that the deep ones could be, could be anywhere. They could be off the coast anywhere. Yeah. I mean, they're off the coast of Spain, aren't they? In, uh, in the Stuart Gordon Dagon there. They're all in Spain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also just wanted to mention, I don't know if anyone else ever saw this movie, but I, I remember this movie really vividly from when I was a kid, or at least I remember this one particular aspect of it. But this is a, a movie, uh, I think it's Australian, called Frog Dreaming uh, from 1986, although it looks like it was also mm-hmm. released under the title The Quest. Um, and it's just, it's set in this small town and there's this, the kids aren't, from what I remember, aren't allowed to swim in the lake because there's supposedly a lake monster. And then at one point, one of the kids kind of like puts on some scuba gear and goes diving down and never comes back up again. And, Mm. um, and the scene I remember really vividly is, is one of his friends is then looking into a fish tank and there's this, um, treasure chest, you know, in the, in the fish tank. And the treasure chest fills up with air and then opens up and all the bubbles come out. And the friend realizes, oh, he could still be alive. You know, he's, he's, he's long past run out of air, but he could still be alive if there's a pocket of air under the, under the lake. And so at the end, it turns out that there's a construction crane that had gotten dumped into the lake and it's all covered over with, uh, with weeds and algae and stuff. And then periodically, uh, the air builds up inside it and it brings it to the surface and it kind of looks like the Loch Ness monster and then it falls back down again. And so the legends of this lake monster have come from this this crane periodically surfacing and, and people thinking it's a monster. And uh, I don't know if anyone else ever saw that, but that always really never that, that, no, that always no. stuck out in my head. Um, I guess I also just wanted to. I mean, a lot of these movies they they sort of have interesting ideas that they don't really do anything with. And one of them was uh, in Leviathan. The um, the idea is that they had been genetically engineering humans to survive deep underwater, and it doesn't really do anything with that idea. You know, it just turns into like the thing, uh, 
except without the aspect of the thing that makes it interesting, <laughs> which is that you don't know who's a thing and who's not. So it's it's not that great of a movie. But I like that idea. I think there's there's a lot they could have done with that idea of genetically engineering people to to live underwater and. Peter Watts does that in the book Starfish, which is a really, really great book about deep sea existence. Uh, it's sci-fi. But yeah, the, the thing in that book is, uh, they have to physically re-engineer people to basically exist at these high pressures and these depths. But they also have to psychologically engineer them to live in these claustrophobic environments away from like sunlight and everything in these close conditions. And they discover that, um, I think it's like sociopaths are the best people at staying on task and doing their jobs in these environments. It's a really good book. Two sequels aren't as good, but the original one's great. Yeah, now Starfish, it's on our list here that I read, um, but, you know, I haven't read it. But, um, yeah, I mean, Peter Watts is great, so uh, i definitely like to check it out sometime. Yeah, it's really, in terms of, like, stuff about super, super deep sea stuff, it's it's a really, really one of the best. Yeah, and I, I believe he has a degree in marine biology, too, so... Yeah, I was going to say that there's like a really amazing sort of, I wouldn't call it necessarily underwater horror because they're in the shallows, but there's an aquatic horror scene in Becky Chambers' novella, uh, To Be Taught If Fortunate, which blew me away a couple weeks ago when I read it. I mean, like, I don't, I can't remember the last time I cried that hard reading anything, but there's, um, it's about a team of researchers who have gone into deep space to explore like planets on behalf of mankind. And one of them is a water planet and they, they aren't stranded there, but they have struggles there that they don't have on other planets. And it is, and, and basically like, um, these creatures come out of the, out of the sea on this planet and they attach themselves to the hull. And they, they, it's just one of the most horrifying, claustrophobic, aquatic, what do these things that crawled out of this water want from us scene that I have read in a really, really long time. So if that kind of, horror does get to you i mean it is a science fiction novella but i mean it's worth it's worth reading anyway but that sort of that scene it was just so overwhelming that i i had to put it down for a second and walk away and just be like it's okay there's more book to go this isn't the end of it but yeah like it was it was very very powerfully done could you say that title again molly to be taught if fortunate thank you yeah that kind of reminds me there's a scene in um uh, Heinlein's novel Time for the Stars where they're looking for a world that they can settle on having left Earth and they come to this mm -hmm. world that just seems perfect but then these kind of whale monsters come up out of the water and start attacking them and they have to flee from the planet and I just like that idea that you know that everything above the surface of the water can seem fine but then you never know what might be under the water yeah that actually kind of makes me think of that great scene in Interstellar too, where they end up. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Giant. That was some of the scariest water I've ever seen. <laughs> it was probably CGI water, though, so I'm surprised yeah. Katie didn't hate it. Hey, well, they spent the money on it. Um, <laughs> well, one of the things also when we were talking about water a minute ago, like I think also one of the problems with water and why it feels so unsafe to us is – we're slow and clumsy in water. You know, if we're in a ship, it turns slowly. Um, the speeds aren't that high. You can't move that quickly. I mean, movement in water has the real quality of a nightmare. Um, and we're surrounded by things that are, you know, engineered to move really efficiently in water. So I think that's another thing that at least for me accounts for my uncomfortableness with it. No, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I would imagine, you know, with 
obviously with climate change and with the oceans rising that, you know, we're going to see more stories, uh, you know, obviously science fictional, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing a lot more sort of aquatic horror, you know, based on the, the, the horror that we're living with, with climate change. Yeah. And you can't really do action scenes underwater because of like Grady's saying, like how slowly people move, you know, you know, like, like karate fights and stuff like that. I'm thinking of. <laughs> so it is kind of like, there's a weird way in which water is sort of more suited to, to horror um, than anything else. I want that to be a tagline underwater. No one can do karate. <laughs> um see paul earlier you said that you wanted to talk about the host did we uh say oh, everything yeah. you wanted we, to say or oh i would love to hear what, what everyone else would have to say but uh i so i rewatched it recently you know I, I i watched it probably for once 10 years ago and i mean for one it was sort of fun to watch again after having recently seen parasite because i do think there's some clear parallels between the two movies in terms of the family that's the focus of both films and how they're used. Um, and I think in both movies more successfully in, I mean, Parasite's a perfect movie. So I'm not, host is a great movie too, but you know, one of the things about the hosts, I mean, this is a little bit of a field of the aquatic horror nature of it, but it just feels like everything is so out of control and he builds all this things up into like it's an explosion, but then sort of the pieces start to fit back together again. Um, I don't know, just an amazing filmmaker, but no, the host is, I mean, it's everything I want in a big monster movie or, or aquatic horror movie. It's legitimately scary. It's also fun. Um, it has, you know, some really memorable, I hate saying set pieces, but I'm going to say it, but like, you know, the opening of, you know, when the monster first appears is, is breathtaking. Just how that is shot. Um, so no, I mean, it's one of my favorites. Um, I was also just really struck by. Um, cause I'd forgotten, you know, what I remembered when I first saw it 10 years ago was, oh yeah, the, the monster itself, but I'd forgotten the whole subplot of, of the fake virus and, you know, seeing people mm -hmm. in masks, you know, terrified of this, you know, in the movie, they call it an Asian, you know, the Americans are calling it an Asian flu. Um, you know, was quite, you know, jarring and obviously, you know, very prescient, um, on Bong Joon-ho's part. And, you know, The Host is another one of those movies where they had to make a lot of decisions like Jaws for practical reasons that wind up helping the movie. You know, I mean, Jaws famously, they couldn't get the shark to work, which is why you see it so rarely, um, which I can't imagine that movie seeing the shark more. And The Host is the same thing in that opening scene, you know, where it goes into those um, those tractor trailers uh, mm -hmm. and kills all the people, which is a horrifying scene, but they don't show it. They show it go inside and they show blood dripping out from under the door, but that was done for budget reasons. And you feel like with a lot of these movies, the less, you know, I got a little bored of the monsters the more I saw them in underwater. Like the more fully they were revealed, the mm -hmm. less threatening, the more they just seem like, you know, I don't know, just giant dorks. <laughs> Well, and I, I was just going to say, like, as I said, just having watched Jaws pretty much for the first time, you know, I'd caught bits and snatches of it before. But when the shark actually like shows up at the end and is like eating um, Quint and stuff like that, it really just looks like a big puppet, you know, like. Oh, yeah. Uh, it definitely becomes not scary uh, as soon as you get a good look at it. So, yeah. Says you. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I've seen Jaws probably 50 times, not an exaggeration. But I've only seen Quint actually get eaten once. When that scene comes, I always sort of I cover my face, cover my head. I can't watch it again because that scene <laughs> broke my brain as a ten year old. And it's almost worse because I'm listening to him screaming and I hear the sounds, but I just cannot bring myself. I've seen many many a more gory things than that. 
a tax scene, but I, I just can't watch it. You know, there's a, I was going to say that there's, I was thinking about the host when I was watching Jaws because of that scene that I was talking about, the quiet dinner scene. And my favorite scene from the host is this is the same where they're all eating dinner and the memory of the missing girls with them. Um, and it's just so quiet and it's so, it's just this weird moment in a totally chaotic film where you get, where you just feel the sort of empathy for these people who are going through this situation. And I, and that was one of the things that I really took notice of when I watched that film. And I too was thinking about the virus stuff. I mean, even before it was weird that one of the first things that I saw, um, like strange little like COVID things that were happening earlier this year is that the, um, there's this like local character in Portland who um, rides a unicycle and plays a flaming bagpipe. And he was going around um, spraying, doing this, um, riding his unicycle, playing his flaming bagpipe, and then just spraying Lysol in the air and was like, don't worry, everybody, I got this. And I was actually thinking about the host because there's also aerosolized virus treatments and that. So like, that's a movie that's been on my mind a lot recently. So So did everyone like Shape of Water? Because I was honestly kind of underwhelmed by it, but I, I seem to be in the minority on that. I mean, to me, it's just Free Willy where the kid's older and a woman and has sex with the whale. <laughs> it, it didn't do a lot for me. And also, I really can't get over. I hope Octavia Spencer got a lot of money to play yet another sassy black best friend. That role needs to die. I I, I find it so offensive. Yeah, I, I just had a hard time believing that the... um. The, the monster would be left alone enough for her to like sneak in and have this whole relationship with it. I, I just didn't understand why they wouldn't have guards posted watching it 24 seven, if it was that important. Um, and then Michael Shannon, uh, I usually love, but I thought his character was way over the top in the shape of water. But, um, um, I don't know, but, but so Molly, what did you think? Yeah, I, I had mixed feelings about it. I really, it's funny because my mom wanted to go see it. And I was like, are you sure you want to see the Fishman sex movie? And she was like, that's not what this is. It's gotten all these awards. And I was like, well, let's go. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and at some point she leaned over it. It was Christmas day too. And she leaned over and she was like, this is a Fishman sex movie. And I was like, I don't so. But yeah, she really liked it. And she was sort of transfixed by the beauty and the beast story. And, um, a couple of the other things that I really, I liked about it, the fairy tale quality, but I too felt that it, yeah, there were, there were things that kept like eating my mind, like at the back of my mind when I was watching it. And then, but I don't know, I kind of loved Michael Shannon. I was just like, I, I, I get that this movie is wearing its heart on its sleeve where it's like, who is the monster? And like, okay, we've all, we've all experienced that motif <laughs> of film before, but like, I thought he was pretty. I've, the, the scariest thing in that movie was the scene where he's like having sex with his wife and his rotting fingers are over her mouth. And I'm just like, this is worse than any fish man. Like, this is absolutely abject and like was just sort of like, yeah. So I don't know. I, I liked it, but I don't know. I've never felt compelled to watch it again like I have with many other Guillermo del Toro films. How about Paul? Yeah, I don't have too much to add because I have to admit, I, I only saw the movie distractedly on an airplane and all the sex scenes were edited out. So I feel like I really missed out. <laughs> oh, no, you really did miss out. I mean, that's that's half the reason to watch it is the fish man sex. <laughs> like... Right. So I haven't gone back. I haven't gone back for the fish man sex. Yeah. I could also never forgive him for eating her cat. Like, sorry. But that's just, that's a deal breaker for me. That was a hard one. Yeah, it was very like sexy Alf at that point, and I was just like, I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> yeah, 
I also feel like, I don't know, what's the line between fairy tale and just using a bunch of stereotypes? Like, I just, the movie drove me nuts. Oh, it's the sad, lonely, closeted, gay, middle-aged man who'll never find love. Oh, it's the evil, you know, religious, right-wing, go-America guy. It's the sassy, black best friend. It was just, ugh. It just drove me nuts. I mean, I feel like there, I feel like there's a point where you have, where you should lose your license. You know, like, uh, like it's just, you've done one stereotype over the line and someone just is like, you know what? You need to cool out for a while. Just go into the world and meet actual people for a few years and, and come back in five years and, and make a movie then. Yeah. But then it won Oscar for best picture. So. I know, and I was so shocked because I also felt that it did really poorly with, I don't know, like, I mean, having read a lot about sort of like how, I don't know, it had sort of magical disabledness as well, which I know, which is one of those things yeah. that I felt was also another misstep where it's like, oh, she's, you know, she didn't have her voice because she's secretly a magic gill fish person. And I was just like, no, oh, that's where we, okay, well best picture. But then again, like, I wondered too, if some of the reaction was it was a mainstream monster movie and like how, if it just introduced things to an audience that had not seen them before. And that's why it was like, people were so affectionate towards it. Yeah. And it, it's a beautiful looking movie. And I thought Doug mm-hmm. Jones was a fantastic fish man. Mm-hmm. I also wonder, I mean, I feel like the, um, the Academy often gives awards to things that it perceives as sort of, um, uh, celebrating Hollywood traditions and old Hollywood and stuff like that. And I just wonder if the, the tide, a creature from the black lagoon wanted a lot of um, goodwill um, among the sort of people who vote for the Oscars. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. So um, yeah, we're pretty much out of time. So um, did anyone have anything else they wanted to, any other movies on this list or anything that we didn't get to that they wanted to talk about? I just do want to do a quick shout out. If people are looking for another book, um, Killer by Peter Tonkin, which I think is from the seventies. It's another one of those books where like, or movies, but you know, books too, where, where the military thinks it's a really good idea to engineer a super intelligent, uh, in this case, a killer whale, uh, that escapes, but it's, uh, it is so, so good. It is literally a bunch of scientists on an Arctic expedition who get stuck on an ice flow that's steadily diminishing in size as they are attacked by a really, really hateful killer whale. It is phenomenal. Um, and because it's a 70s novel, there's lots of problems with representation and things like that. But man, it's a good book. Right, cool. And how about Paul? Any uh, final thoughts? Um, I guess I would mention John Langan's novel, The Fisherman. Um, oh, yeah. Which, I mean, it's a pretty sprawling epic novel. It, you know, it opens with, you know, two widowers who go to a secret fishing place. And then there ends up being sort of a, a story about what had happened at this place years prior. So the novel sort of skips there. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to spoil it for you, but it, it certainly, you know, the title pays off at the end with some, you know, giant aquatic monster fish action. Really? Um, but, good I mean, it's a one, yeah, it's a wonderfully written novel as is everything that John does. Right, cool. And, and Molly, any final thoughts? Yeah, I I mean, just to sort of tie back a little bit to Lovecraft, I would think that one of my favorite non-Lovecraft, but still sort of aquatic-y horror books I've read in recent memory is Sherry Priest's Maplecroft, which is Lizzie Borden versus Deep Ones. 
<laughs> and um, she does indeed kill them with an axe, and it is dope. <laughs> and so it's definitely got a lot of sort of there are things in the ocean, and they are coming for you. And I really liked it, um, both for its sort of location and um, like the discourse around like a famous, you know, murderess, and then also sort of it, it does a lot of things that I think it does a lot of things very effectively, I think, and it actually has some spooky spooky deep one scenes which it's hard lovecraft is so challenging right because like if you're familiar with lovecraftian tropes then you kind of know where things are going and you know how they can the sort of available exits but i i was surprised by that book a few times so i did i do recommend it yeah yeah and i mean i like like i said most of these movies on this list are you could kind of give them a miss but um yeah like jaws the host the abyss mm -hmm. creature from the black lagoon are, are definitely worth checking out um, and even underwater was, as I said, much better than I expected. And particularly, you know, if you ever want to see, if you have, if you've always wanted to see deep ones and Cthulhu in a movie, you know, uh, <laughs> here, here you go. Um, I think there's a lot of potential to this, um, you know, to the, to these movies or sort of a lot of untapped potential to these movies. And if anyone wants to make a, a do a remake of, um, Deep Blue Sea, where it's all about hyperintelligent sharks, manipulating people to <laughs> do what they want and win their freedom. I'm all there for that. So we need more movies where the sharks win is all I'm saying. I can get behind that. Mm -hmm. um, all right, great. So why don't we uh, wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Grady Hendricks, Paul Tremblay, and Molly Tanzer. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks y'all. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Grady Hendricks, Paul Tremblay, and Molly Tanzer for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.